but here are the ground rules again as we went over last week. I would love for you to participate, to uh, jump in, chime in with something, maybe an experience, maybe a story that could help us illustrate what it is that we're going for. The idea that we're talking about, obviously, on Sunday evening is just personal evangelism. There's no particular science to it. I don't believe we can apply a certain formula or do a certain number of steps and then everything's perfect and we'll see lots and lots of people come to the Lord and, and all of that. And, and it's more of an art. It's just sort of figuring out as we go, but operating according to some basic principles. So that the whole goal of this is really to give you some groundwork to maybe as a launching point or some information maybe you didn't know before. Maybe use this as a reference. Some of you were here last week and and you had that, that first sheet that kind of gave you an idea of here's what we're going to learn. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to break down the who and the what and the how and the why of evangelism and, and go from there. We'll spend the most amount of time on the how part because there are several recommended techniques that we'll go over. And I'm sure that many of us have some things that we have experienced that have been successful and not so successful in, in talking about Jesus with other people. And so... Tonight we'll talk about the who, and my goal tonight is to simply give you a framework on who it is that, that we're dealing with when we talk about evangelism, both us as Christians and them as non-Christians, and that sounds awful bad because it's not us against them, and that's key to understand. It's us for them. The reason that we exist as a church and as Christian people is to glorify God, and one way we do that is by being a light to our world. And certainly, if you trace the history of why uh, God has chosen certain people, the, the people of Israel were to, to honor God and draw people, other people to him, to be a light to the world. And Christians today are to do the same thing. And so it's not us against them. So when we see the terms us and them, understand it's not us against them, it's us for them. All right, so let's look at page one, and we'll just move through this. And uh, there are a few fill-in-the-blanks just to sort of Keep you interested in waiting for the next thing. How about that? So if we look at the who of evangelism, starting with us, we, we looked at last week the idea that all Christians are required to evangelize the lost. All Christians. And the scripture that we many of us are familiar with, probably Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore, Jesus gave me this, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And he goes on to tell them that he would be with them. And and, and so this was given as a send-off to his disciples, but as a, a command that is still in effect today. It doesn't require the gift, in quotations, the gift of evangelism. Some would, would, uh, would quote Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and goes on. To, to mean that well, only those people that are given as quote-unquote evangelists are to do evangelism. But interestingly enough, the New Testament evangelists, as you see there in the next point, were simply missionaries who pioneered church outreach in areas where the faith had, had not as yet been proclaimed. That simply meant they went somewhere that nobody had ever talked about Jesus before. That didn't mean that they were the only ones who talked about Jesus. We know from the New Testament, the disciples everywhere they went did evangelism constantly. As you'll see, there are several verses here. Let's look at them. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Every day in the temple complex and in various homes, so wherever they were, they continued teaching and proclaiming.
proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It wasn't just one person or a set of people. It was all of them. Acts 8.25. Then, after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. This is just something they did. Acts 13.32. As we are, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our forefathers. That's when Paul was on his first missionary journey. That's what he did was evangelism. Acts chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to assault and stone them, the disciples, they found out about it and fled to Lyconian towns called Lystra and Derby and the surrounding countryside. And there they kept evangelizing, Acts 14, 21. After they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and Antioch. So we see, obviously, that Evangelism was something all the disciples did continuously. It was not something that was for the super spiritual, something for only a group known as evangelists to do. Uh, and and I, I read a quote by a guy named Mark Dever, who is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And he, his quote is this, We cannot follow Jesus without inviting people to come to Christ. That essentially the direct, the direct extension of our faith in Jesus is then to live that out as evangelism. And I, I've heard it said before that, that the natural course of things, that discipleship ultimately leads to evangelism. It is just an extension of who you are. And so uh, as, as us, as we look at this, we realize it's not just one or two or a group. It's, it's all of us that are included in this. It does not require the gift of evangelism. And uh, so let's look at page number two. When we talk about them, there are certain categories and maybe Profiles of unbelievers. And so as we move through this, I, I realize this list, and, and just by design, is not exhaustive. We could uh, write entire books, and they've been written about the different sorts of beliefs that people have. What I've included here is just maybe uh, something that you can go back to as a point of reference, maybe some typical things that you might run into or something unique. I'm not sure. Uh, as we move through this, feel free to, to raise a hand and comment if you've got something to add about a person who's sort of like this. You ran into somebody like this. You, you know someone. You've got a family member, whatever it may be. So let's look at them. There are folks known as agnostics. They, they feel that God's existence can't be proven or disproven. That God's existence can't be proven or disproven. Uh, he, he may be there. He can't prove it. So what's the point? No sense in trying, basically. How many of you know, just kind of based on that general description, know somebody like that? They may be there, but I yeah, can't really prove it. Anybody, Bill says he does, maybe somebody else. Sometimes you run into that. Um, a lot of times, and Jeremy, you may see this, I'm not sure. Some of you work around the university or work around college students. This is sort of a, uh, it's not a new thing, but it is a typical thing of a lot of college students that are exploring, well, I don't really know, or you can't know, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't, but you can't fully know is their argument. They deny the existence of heaven and hell or any real spiritual world. So you can see that they're not just sort of saying, well, I'm humble and I'm not sure that I can understand everything about God. It's a, it's a very unbiblical way to look at things. It, they're not the same as an atheist, though. Atheists, of course, and we'll get to this in a minute, they deny the existence of God, that there's no way he could be there. Uh, so, and it's not based upon, interestingly enough, not based upon being unintelligent or indecisive. They've made up their mind. That you just don't know. That's, that's their, their, their mentality that they've made up their mind. But they do believe, these folks that are agnostics, do believe in being a good person. That's sort of where they find some value. And, and, and actually,
actually, they, they think, agnostics think, uh, that all people are born basically good. All people are born basically good. And ultimately, this person wants irrefutable proof of God's existence. Irrefutable proof. Prove it, is what they might say to you. Prove it and I'll believe it. Show me and I'll believe it. Based upon that, does anybody, maybe maybe as we narrow that down a little bit, how many of you know people who think that by and large people are born basically good? Anybody, anybody know some folks like that? Well, I do. And, and we, we see evil in the world and we just think, well, that's just, that's an aberration. That, that's not the way people really are. Anybody know somebody who, who doesn't really believe in God and they demand or want or are interested in, in just absolute proof. Anybody know somebody like that? What if you tried in those situations? They might have to, to try to defend that proof of God. What, what is it, good, bad, or otherwise? Maybe you fall on your face with this sort of argument. I don't know. What if you tried with people like this? They, they want proof. They, they're not real sure. Anybody have an experience to try something? Yes, sir. Okay. Interestingly, a lot of times folks will will take something from the supposed scientific world, whatever the, the latest theory is, and say, well, what about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? And of course, the, the thing about the Bible, and, and I guess you can, in a sense, be confident, the Bible doesn't speak about everything. Um, and so it, it's not, it is a theological history, meaning that it has a purpose to teach theological truth in its history. It is historically accurate. But it's not historically exhaustive, if that makes sense. So you're not going to find everything. And in fact, you'll you'll come across passages in the Scripture, and you just think, why did they put that in there and not something else? And they give you this big, long genealogy and then a one-sentence summary of a battle. Where they'll list all the, the soldiers and numbers and all that fought it and then tell you just briefly about something else. Understand that, that not everything is in there. So you don't have to feel like if somebody puts you against the wall, so to speak, and says, well, this is what, you know, a scientist said, what does the Bible have to say about that? The Bible may not speak to everything. It has a purpose for what it's doing, but it may not speak to everything. And that can be very frustrating, though, sometimes. It really can be. Uh, Yes, sir. just don't want to be bothered by it. They, they just, that's an excuse for you to get off their back, so to speak. Yeah. And clearly, you know, if folks, if there is a God, then we are answerable to somebody. And of course, in our society, as I mentioned this morning, I could preach on selfishness every single week and never run out of things to talk about because it's just everywhere. And again, that has nothing to do with anybody in particular. It's just humans in general because we, we want to make our own rules and decide what it's going to be. So if there's a God, then we're in trouble. Because then that God makes the rules. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, great minds think alike, don't they? That's right. 
Absolutely. Or very simple minds. I want to tell you, you've got to be great one.
the, the emphasis here is on meditation and getting in touch with, with whatever might be out there. Uh, usually some sort of, uh, of force or something along those lines. The ultimate goal for a person of, of this faith is to reach nirvana, uh, which is a state of being that is totally separated from individuality, negative emotions, and desires, because those things are what cause suffering and evil in the world. And for they, those things force people into this endless cycle of, of life and rebirth because of what's known as bad karma. Uh, and, and so there is no personal God, and believe that Buddha... Uh, showed the path to salvation through this state of nirvana. Now, uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that this is probably not very prevalent where we live. Uh, I would assume that this is probably maybe more for uh, East Coast, West Coast, larger um, metropolis-type you know, areas, not metropolis, Illinois. Uh, anybody run into somebody of, of Buddhist maybe descent or faith? Anybody? Some of you? Yeah, okay. So maybe, you know, it may be more prevalent than I, than I think. A lot of times, I think what you'll find is sort of a, uh, an alteration of Buddhist thinking. They're, 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 they're sort of trying to mix a lot of different faiths together, and they have arrived at some sort of meditation experience kind of thing. That makes sense. They may not define it as Buddhism, but it, it takes on similar characteristics. No? There's uh, down the street from uh, my home church in Louisville, uh, there's a Buddhist temple that is in a residential area, and they have apparently just enough not out there to face any sort of fines or, or threat of removal of any of the stuff. They've got Buddhas everywhere, and, and it's, it is that folks have been up in arms about trying to get it removed. And, um, I guess good, bad, or otherwise, the law protects Anybody of any faith, you know, that's good, good or bad, not sure. But anyway, um, okay, here's one that maybe we can can all relate to, evolutionists. Of course, this is not a particular religion as such, uh, but more of a, of a way of thinking. They believe that all life on earth results from random chance. Random chance. There's no God or spiritual world, but uh, given enough time and chance, and it kind of equals everything we see. And, of course... That time and chance is completely random and really long, billions and billions and billions of years. And, and interestingly enough, and some of you may have run into this, particularly those who may have worked uh, in education or something like that, they, these folks often ignore the weaknesses in their theory. Uh, what about gaps in the uh, fossil record? Well, just, I don't know. What about how things originally got started? Well, it just sort of happened. There are some holes and gaps in this particular theory. Um, how many of you deal with folks on a regular basis that would ascribe to an evolutionist way of thinking? Anybody? I, I, I do. Some folks. And interestingly enough, a lot of Christians will will say that, well, you know, I, I, I kind of see God as maybe the originator of evolution. Maybe he got it started and, you know, and... and, and then it took its course, and maybe that's the way that it is. Maybe God used evolution to create the world. The danger in that is that there's nothing in the Bible at all to support that, that idea. There's nothing at all. Could God use whatever he wanted to? Yeah, he's God. But did he? The Bible gives no evidence whatsoever of anything but God speaking it into existence as it is. And that is the Genesis record. And so understand there's a danger in, in conceiving.
to a person, well, well, okay, maybe that, maybe God used that because the Bible does not support that. Yes, sir. Uh, typically, evolutionists would ascribe to that. Yeah, typically, um, of course, and that becomes very difficult to understand how that happened as well. And so. thinking is to get them to begin to break down their ideas and their theory. Um, they will want to put the responsibility on you to prove everything, and, and, and they have to say nothing of any consequence or substance whatsoever. And, and if you can't, you know, answer their question, well, the creationism is wrong. Well, that's, that's begging the question, so to speak. And, and so a lot of times turning it around on them helps. Look at uh, page three. Yes, I'm sorry, go right ahead. up in Newport, isn't it? The Creation Museum of Newport. That's the way it's dealt with. They, they deny the deity or the godness 
of Jesus Christ. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the same as the Archangel Michael. Uh, and so they, they don't believe that eternal life is by grace through faith alone. There are things you have to add to it. There are works you must do. There's a way to earn your way into that. And so the sticking point a lot of times here is the deity of Jesus Christ. Many times when you're dealing with people of, of, uh, of different uh, religions, you can begin to tell the differences based on what they think and say about Jesus. And, uh, of course, we know from the Scripture that we, with Jesus is always the sticking point. The cross, it says, is a stumbling block. And so uh, the cross would not be necessary if Jesus were not the perfect sacrifice and so on. You can begin to sort of break down their arguments based upon that. I'm no expert on Jehovah's Witnesses. How many of you had a conversation um, with those kinds of folks? Anybody? No, I don't. Nancy, do you, do you know that? I, I don't. That's a good question, Bill. Who wrote their Bible? That is an excellent question. When I was coming through this, I, I did not, um, I did not, you know, study in depth each one of these. Uh, so that's a good question. Who who wrote it? Who adapted it? Maybe that sort of thing. That's a good question. I'm not sure about that. or regional or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. So you can always count on being there when, when you need them on a holiday. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes. say the place of the flag or anything. I, I remember I remember going through school with, with certain students that were Jehovah's Witnesses, and there were a lot of things that, you know, that they didn't participate in, certainly. to talk with people that, that are like this, the, the, the thing about it is that we know, and, and, and we'll get to this more in the what part of things, but when, when someone wants to call Jesus a great prophet, a great teacher, but not the Son of God, we have major issues because Jesus himself claimed to be God in human flesh, not just a prophet from God, not just a great teacher, 
he claimed to be God. And, and through a lot of different things, uh, he forgave sin, and so only God can do that. And, and so it, the logic of an argument that, that puts Jesus up as a great prophet or teacher, but not the Son of God, breaks down because if he were a great prophet or teacher, why would he claim to be something he's not? It makes him out to be a liar. Which then refutes the fact that he could be a great prophet or teacher, because why would a great prophet or teacher lie? And can you then believe anything else they say? So he must either be who he says he was or something completely different. Maybe you've heard that argument before. And so when you begin, if you have a conversation with someone who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning that they deny, well, Jesus was a great man, great teacher, and he was a prophet, maybe he was sent by God, but he's not God. You can begin then to operate according to what Jesus claimed to be God over and over in the New Testament. He did things that only God could do. And, and how does that line up with him being a great teacher? Great teachers, I know, don't lie. And so what, what would be, you know, that, those are some, some starting points anyway for some conversations there. Look at the, the, the Mormons. Uh, they believe the Book of Mormon is inspired by God, uh, which was God's dealings with uh, the people in North America, basically. Uh, Joseph Smith, of course, is the guy who founded the Mormons. They believe getting to heaven is through a combination of grace, through faith, and works. Uh, this is where, of course, we differ very much from them in, in that uh, salvation, according to the Bible, is by grace through faith alone. That's it. Cannot earn it. It is a free gift of God. And so they believe that God was once just the man that we can one day become gods ourselves. We begin to see that though... Uh, the Mormons may be a very caring and, and loving sort of people. Uh, they do not share in any way the same beliefs that we do. So we need to be very careful not to be uh, standoffish toward them in any way, but to understand that we are not on the same team. Uh, we are not pulling on the same side of the rope, in, in a sense. We, we, we see things very, very differently. Uh, look at, uh, at, at most, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are the ones who typically will be in pairs of going door to door. Yes, ma'am.
Joseph Smith, the, the founder, claims to have had a, an interaction with Gabriel, uh, who revealed to him this new religion, this new form of Christianity, basically. Uh, uh, and, and as a result, he began writing all these down in these series of visions. I, I can't necessarily deny that somebody could have a, a vision or hallucination. We, we know that those things are possible, and it depends on what you may be or may not be on at the time. I'm not sure. But it is a fabrication. Uh, it is not uh, a direct extension of the Old uh, New Testament. It, it is a direct fabrication of all that. You're exactly right. It's, it, again, it, it is dangerous to begin to think, well, maybe they're kind of like us. Certainly they're human, but in their beliefs, they're not human. Yes, sir. That's a good question. Yes, I don't know. sort of as we get into the, I guess, to the what and the how a little bit, I, my goal is to provide you some of the ways to engage different sorts of people. What is it that you can say without without just hammering somebody? Of course, you know, the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to present the gospel to them and see them come to Jesus. I mean, that, we can win arguments and lose people. You understand that? Of course, we, we've probably all been there. So Muslims, uh, interesting, those of the uh, faith of Islam, are required, and some of you may already know this, to believe in seven basic tenets of their faith, that God exists, that God, and these are just basic things of their faith. God's angelic servants and enemies, basically angels and demons. God's word, which is the Quran, they also include in that the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Psalms. God's prophets, which uh, of which Muhammad is the greatest. God's judgment, that one day there is going to be a judgment day. God's justice, and basically that is weighing good deeds and bad deeds. And then God's resurrection, Allah will raise the dead. There are five pillars of Islam that, that basically uh, these are the things that everyone must be a part of and in agreement with or do. Uh, that Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, prayer five times a day is required facing east toward Mecca. Uh, there is the giving of money, uh, giving alms as it's called, which is typically for them two to 3% of their income. Fasting during their holy month of Ramadan and then a pilgrimage to Mecca, which is where their, their faith originated. Uh, they believe that Jesus is an esteemed prophet, but not the Son of God. And there again, we have the issue that if he claimed to be God, how could he be a great prophet if he's not God? It doesn't, doesn't make sense. They don't believe that Jesus was crucified or even died for that matter, and that their salvation is largely through works. That one day your good deeds will outweigh, outweigh the bad, and... and uh, and then you'll be okay. They believe Islam uh, is the one true religion. We are in agreement on that, that there is only one true religion. We just disagree on what it is. They believe that Islam is the one true religion. They are exclusive, just like Christians. We are exclusive. Many when I try to keep people out, but there's only one way. Uh, they are the world's second largest religion, over one billion people, and growing very, very quickly. Uh, their birth rate outpaces the birth rate of Christian homes right now, which uh, is interesting. Yes, sir.
stayed in there. Keep going, sure. stage for many of us, but it's interesting, Donna Scott has told me on a couple of occasions how one day apparently she uh, expressed to the young people that it was time for them to begin to bear children, and uh, and she said, you know, miraculously, not long after that, we had several pregnant couples, and so, um, you know, there, there are, and this, this takes us a little bit on a, on a side note, um, but one interesting thing that, that we as, as parents, as grandparents, as as friends, uh, need to really encourage our young people to do. And I don't say this from a utilitarian standpoint, that well, we need to keep up with the Muslim births. But what we need to be telling them is the great value that is found in marriage and parenting and, and, and encourage them toward the right path of doing that uh, and, and toward a, a non-me-centered life. Because it can very easily, through those college years, those young adult years, become very me-centered. And we put things off and put things off. And not only do we set ourselves up for moral impurity, the longer we hold off those hormones that are meant for one particular thing, but we also delay and reduce the, the, the amount of family that we have. And I, I'm, I'm, my parents have two children, so I'm not here to tell you that if you don't have eight kids, there's something wrong with you. Don't, don't, that's not the point. But understand, we have got to take the responsibility to encourage our young people to move toward a healthy marriage and toward parenting children the right way. Because if not, we're going to find ourselves quickly, uh, and, and I don't mean in any sort of racial sort of issue, but quickly in a faith issue in a big-time minority situation. And we, of course, we know that that's not going to be good, uh, either for our country or for our world. And so, um, you know, again, I, I don't necessarily have a, a verse for that other than be fruitful and multiply uh, but uh, but I, I think it's a very it's a very rational, reasonable argument to be made. And so, if you've got young people in your life, uh, I would not rush them toward marriage. Would not rush them toward having children. But I would guide them to help them know what a godly biblical marriage and what godly biblical parenting is all about, as best you can. Uh, and, and maybe it's your grandkids, your great grandkids that you can talk to. I don't know. Uh, but uh, but th- there you have it. So if you're you know, I think if folks are at all able uh, to to have children, and that is a natural progression of things. And some folks are not. And, and uh, you know, I think if folks have adopted, I mean, I'm, that's incredible. What a story about uh, God's just the way God does us. I mean, I mean, He adopts us in His family. You know, we've got Nancy and I have some friends in Louisville. They have adopted two children from Korea. They, they lost four babies. I couldn't, couldn't carry them to turn. And so adopted. I mean, it's just, a, you know, but what they were raising them in a Christian home, and, and absolutely incredible. So let, let's. Let's look at the next one. Uh, new Age, which it may be something uh, for you that's unfamiliar, but it's not new. Um, basically, according to this particular belief system, though this will not necessarily be a religion or organized church, but we all have the potential to achieve God-like status. Uh, they don't believe in God as a person. 
but as a force or consciousness that is in everything and everyone. So if you think of Star Wars, you sort of have a new age way of thinking. Uh, use the force. There is something out there. It's not a person. It's not God. But you can tap into it because it's sort of in everything and, and it's in everyone. Uh, and, and, and I'm not here to speak against Star Wars. I happen to like Star Wars. If you differ with me on that, I don't know. But but uh, but it is a, a dangerous way of, of thinking. Star Wars is a movie, not a way of life. And so, um, anyway, uh, they believe that we are moving toward a new age. This is where the terminology comes from, of peaceful prosperity. As we begin to realize that God is in everything and in everyone, eventually we'll all just sort of move toward peace. And things will be great. Of course, the Bible... If you understand the end of the Bible, things get a whole lot worse before they get better. Um, I don't mean to put a downer on things. Things may get better before they get worse, before they get better. But they're going to get worse at some point. That's just the way it is. Uh, when you see the battles that take place in the Old Testament, it's not exactly a fun place to be. So this idea of moving toward peaceful prosperity and everything's going to be great is completely unbiblical. But they believe in karma and reincarnation. So what goes around comes around. Of course, the Bible says that God determines what goes around comes around, but according to New Age thinking, uh, it is karma. It's just sort of what goes around comes around. And reincarnation, you're reborn. You try it all over again. Uh, they don't believe in the biblical concept of sin and the need for forgiveness. Uh, they don't believe, as a result of that, obviously, that there is a coming judgment. There's really nothing, no one to answer to. You just you mess it up in this life, you get another shot coming up. Do your best. Uh, those are some profiles of just general unbelievers. Uh, I'm sure that you've run into different people. Uh, maybe some are on this list, maybe not. Uh, those are just, just a starting point, just trying to give you a little bit of information. Um, Tom Rainer, as we looked at last week in his book called uh, The Unchurched Next Door, lists some different profiles of, of the unchurched, many people who attend five times or less. Uh, and, and I want to run through these quickly as we close to kind of give you an idea of of who we're dealing with. The U5, which is unchurched five, that's just what he calls it, the level five, is a person who's very, very antagonistic and resistant to the gospel. But interestingly enough, uh, of the unchurched people, these are the wealthiest. And, of course, the Bible is clear, as we looked at last week, that it is very difficult uh, for folks who have monetary wealth here on earth to perceive their need for God. It's not impossible by any means. We know lots of folks who are blessed with lots of money and who are great Christian people and serve the Lord, but it is more difficult, the Bible says. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that they are the wealthiest uh, unchurched people. They're also the most educated unchurched people. They're likely to be over 50 years old. I'm not sure why that is, but they're likely to be over 50 years old. Very resistant, very antagonistic toward the gospel. We think of this a lot with maybe a college student or a teenager. It's just, don't talk to me about that. Likely to be over 50 years old. Interesting. Not likely to ever attend church or pray. They usually have a very negative view of the Bible and the church. They are less likely than the other unchurched people to believe in heaven or hell. They are likely to believe that religion is for the weak-minded. Your religion is your crutch, they might say. Well, if you were really a strong person, you wouldn't need all that. You know, and, and Jesus is for weak people. And folks who can't cut it in life or make it on their own. That may be the response that you get from people. And you probably have family members a neighbor, a relative, somebody who, who probably is like that. They look at you and your faith in Jesus and think, well, they're just kind of weak. They can't cut it. They can't make it. The U5 would be that. An unchurched four, level four, is similar to the U5 on the issue of heaven and hell. 
and, and this is interesting, many U4s hold to plurality. Plurality, which is the idea that all religions are equal. They're all okay. They're all equal. They all sort of lead to the same place. They view Jesus as an important figure in history, but not the Son of God. They see the exclusive claims of Christianity, this is popular in our world today, as intolerant and narrow-minded. That's what they see. Interestingly enough, those who claim that Christians are intolerant or completely intolerant of our intolerance, which doesn't make any sense, then their argument then breaks down. How can, how can you say I'm intolerant and you be intolerant of my intolerance? That doesn't, doesn't fly with me. But, you know, whatever. So, you know, it's, most of the time, if we just go to think this stuff out, most of the time, things that people have to say just don't make any sense. Um, anyway, uh, only 10% of you fours in this category believe that the Bible is God's word. But 60%, which doesn't make any sense to me, believe it to be truthful or mostly truthful. It claims to be God's word, for crying out loud. It's not as if the Bible says, well, this is a good book. And if you think it might be God's word, then okay. The Bible makes exclusive claims. This is God's word. God thus saith the Lord over and over again. And yet only 10% believe it's actually God's word, but 60% think it's truthful. doesn't make any sense to me. Over 40% of you fours pray on a regular basis. What do you guess here? We did this last week. I'll, I'll guess again. What do you think? How many, what percentage are very likely or somewhat likely to attend church and invite? These are typically resistant, but not necessarily antagonistic to the gospel. What do you think? 20? 21. Oh, there we go. It's an odd number. Anybody else? 12 is 21 backwards. I like that. That's good. 62%. Isn't that amazing? 62% of people who are resistant, but not necessarily antagonistic, who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that the Bible is God's Word, 62% are likely or somewhat likely to come to church where hopefully the church that they're going to would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is God's Word. It's amazing. You threes, these folks, again, are largely undecided regarding matters of faith. They're sort of neutral, sitting on the fence. What do you think the percentage is here? Maybe I, I hope I left this one blank. What percentage of you threes neutral, sitting on the fence, do you think would attend if they were invited? 72, 75, 68, 60, 90%. And if, I, 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 again, I didn't write this stuff. I didn't do the study. I'm, I am as surprised sometimes on these things as maybe you are. 90% of people who are generally neutral would attend. Many have a confused understanding of the gospel, believing, as many people do, that it's a combination of faith and works, that that's the way you receive salvation. We have, we have many people, I'm sure, who attend our church on a regular basis who probably think that, well, yeah, I know I need to believe in God, but I also need to clean my act up. And then God's okay with me. And the Bible is just clear. It's by grace. It's a free gift. Through faith. Trust Jesus. Receive his gift. There you have salvation. As a result, we are to be obedient. But it's not before that. That makes sense. Interesting. We get it confused. Most of these folks pray regularly. They, they, they talk to whatever they think might be out there. Um, they Most of these believe in both heaven and hell. But I, I'm sure that, that most of them, because they think that works can earn salvation, think they're on the path to heaven because they're good people. Uh, they have a positive view of clergy or just 
church workers, pastors, whatever. Majority of these folks attended Sunday school or a small group in the past. They, they probably have a, a church history of some sort, maybe as a kid. But many are very eager to learn spiritual things. They're neutral, but they, they want to know something. You too. These are the folks uh, who are receptive and open, but not right on the brink of, of receiving the Lord. They are more likely to be female. Some of these facts are just random and really have no bearing on our discussion whatsoever, but I just thought they were interesting. Most likely, they're more likely to be white. So, white females typically is what this is, interesting enough. They typically have a biblical view of heaven and hell. They have the lowest family income of all of church groups. And again, these folks make the mistake of combining faith with works as the means for salvation. They think, yes, it's faith, but I've got to do something as well. How, what percentage would you say believe that Jesus is the Son of God? At least folks. 98. 100%. Nobody wants to guess. Nobody's gotten it right yet. We're all, we all want to get it right, don't we? I don't want to say anything because I don't know if I'm right. 80% believe Jesus is the Son of God. 80%. But they, but they are not they're not committed followers of Jesus. They, they are not Christians. They, they are not. Interestingly enough. They, so you can see that we can believe some of the basic things and, and still be yet unsaved. Does that make sense? I, I, I don't want to confuse us here, but you have people who know all the right answers and haven't given their lives to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. They're highly influenced by their parents. A lot of times what these folks believe is what their parents believe. Most, the most common witness to a U2 is a family member. Typically, a family member is going to reach this person. Most of these people have had a negative experience. So I just gave you, it's over 50%. What do you think? Negative church experience. Did I say family? Should I say church? Nearly how many, do you think? What percentage? 85? Seventy percent, nearly seventy percent. I love, I love when, when y'all guess because you know I hold all the cards here. If I'm sitting in your shoes, I'm doing the same thing. You know, I actually have the answers written down. That's unfair, I know. Ninety-seven percent are likely to attend church if they're invited. Ninety-seven percent, and then the youth ones. These are the folks that are right on the brink. This is the person that at school or at work or in your family or whatever. If you were to actually tell them about Jesus and how to be saved, they'd do it. Right there on the spot. That they're the people that are that are looking for it. Most of these people have a church background with some fond memories. They're not antagonistic. They enjoy the church. They're just not there anymore. It's just not a part of their life. And, and like many of us, they cite laziness and busyness. Laziness and busyness is two main reasons they don't attend. You probably talk to people like that, and yeah, I'm, I know I need to be there, but. Well, things are just busy right now. I'm just just working a lot. We got a lot going on with our kids, and, or you sort of discern from that. They might not admit it, but they're not really busy. They're just lazy. They don't want to get up. They don't realize it's only an hour or two hours on a Sunday morning that we're inviting you to come to church. They just lazy or busy. Ninety percent have a regular prayer life. Nearly all of these believe in both heaven and hell. For salvation, they start with faith, but then often add works in. You can see the pattern. We have got to teach the truth to people. We have to. And I'm not saying just for me. 
I'm not saying just from the pulpit, though that's extremely important, but we as believers, we have to, to teach people the truth. And so when somebody wants to know, how do you get saved? Well, we don't tell them, well, if you walk the aisle and go talk to the pastor, there's works. If you do this, this, and, and this, it's worse. All it is, repent and believe. That's what Peter said when they said, what must we do? Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus. Give him your life and, and, and let him take care of the rest. We've got to teach the truth. 97% of these people are likely to attend church if they're invited. Yes, sir. starting point, you may say, well, this isn't exactly a sermon. No, it's more seminar-based, I guess. But I, my prayer is that it will help us as we deal with, with folks of different beliefs than we have, that your family members and so on, you'll be better equipped and, and more ready and have a better understanding of, of what it is that we're dealing with, because the goal is to present them the gospel. Uh, we leave the results up to the Lord, that's up to Him, but our goal is to be in a position where we can tell them about Jesus and, and put them face-to-face with a decision. Go from there. Any any closing comments on any of this stuff? Yes, sir. Sir? Oh, yes, sir, absolutely. Denominations that believe in, in works. That I don't know. I'm not as familiar with the various denominations as probably I should be. Uh, but I would not be surprised to hear that any particular ones would, would add works to, to faith. I, I don't know. That's one of the things as we get into it that I'm, I'm hoping I can give you at least, maybe we won't read every single one, but here's something you can sort of know and go by to answer some of those questions because those are, those are important. It's interesting, Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they added works for salvation. Didn't we do this, and didn't we do that, and didn't we do this? And he's going to say, I didn't know you. So you can place your faith in me and and use that alone. Interesting. So we'll continue this next Sunday evening. Um, I appreciate your discussion. Certainly, come loaded. You can ask all the questions you want. And if I don't know, listen, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. And you may be really disappointed. We'll just agree that you can be disappointed, and I just won't know. But we'll figure out the answers, all right? How about that? Please, if you've got any specific questions, write them down for me, and I'll do the best I can to try to help you locate a good answer. If you need some resources, what about a person like this? I, I, I work with somebody like this. Hey, let me know. We'll try to figure something out. The great thing about it is we're also all on this journey together. Let's figure it out as we go. And I appreciate you being here. I know for many of you, you think, well, all right, let's let's go. But I appreciate you being here. And uh, enjoy. I, I look forward to, to Sunday nights to be able to kind of talk to you. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll close with a song. Lord, thank you for helpful information. Lord, I pray that you would put us directly in the path this week of somebody who doesn't know you. And, Lord, maybe it'll be a challenging conversation, but, Lord, I pray you grow us and stretch us through that. 
Lord, maybe it'll be just a very easy conversation. Lord, I pray that we would sit back and enjoy your blessing. God, whatever, I pray, Lord, that, that we would be bold and courageous to talk about Jesus and, and to tell folks the way of salvation. So help us, Lord, as we encounter those people. May we be praying for them and, and looking for them and help us to realize that it's not us against them, but it's us for them. So, Lord, use us and, and grow us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name.